I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 15. This morning, I want you to think about this question. You ready? Here it is. What would your life be like without Jesus? Uh, How would your life be different if Jesus had not come to the earth and had not died and had not risen from the dead? Think about that for a second. You could sleep in a little longer on Sunday mornings, right? Wouldn't be any church to go to. You wouldn't have to listen to me anymore. All right, I'd probably be working as a barista somewhere. (laughs) But how would your life change, really? Would it change the way you act, the way you think, the way you treat other people? Would you be a different kind of person? Would you have different habits and goals? Would anything change for you outside of your Sunday morning? Let's go a little deeper and think about this from a spiritual perspective. You may be thinking, yeah, without Jesus, I wouldn't be saved. I I wouldn't have a relationship with God. I wouldn't go to heaven when I die. That's all completely true. But do we really understand just how bad things would be without Jesus? I wonder if we grasp just how dire our situation is apart from a saving relationship with Christ. I wonder if sometimes we even take it for granted. I know I do. This morning, we're going to see a picture of what your life would look like without Jesus. And I need to warn you, this picture is not pretty. It's pretty awful. Honestly, as I was reading through my sermon and preparing for this, it's like, man, it's hard to preach. It's, just, it's, it's rough. And, and the worst part is, is that this picture is going to come true. For many people who don't know Jesus. The picture I'm referring to is found in Revelation chapters 15 and 16. It's a picture of God's final judgment on a world that has rejected Jesus and remains in their sin. And they are experiencing their future without the cross. So as we talk through these two chapters, I want us to understand, I want us to really feel the weight of what Jesus did. By saving us on the cross. So let's start by just walking through this text in Revelation chapter 15. Here's verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. As the chapter opened, John tells us that he's seeing another sign. Just as he's done this several times throughout Revelation, he's reminding us that these are visions that he's seen. These are symbolic images meant to teach us a spiritual reality. In this particular vision, he calls it great and amazing. He doesn't mean it quite like we normally use those words. He's not saying, hey, he's enjoying this or this is cool. But rather, he's telling us that what he's about to share is really important. It's a big deal. And here's what he sees. He sees seven angels with seven plagues. And here's the important part. These plagues are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. In other words, this is it. 
Uh, we've seen throughout Revelation these different series of judgments. You remember we saw the seven seals. We said those were like the birth pains leading up to the end times. And then we saw the seven trumpets, and we said those were uh, the things that are going to happen during the seven years of tribulation. And all along, things have been just kind of steadily intensifying and building to this boiling point. And now we come to God's final outpouring of judgment upon the earth. Like, this is not just the fourth quarter. This is the two-minute warning. And we can't say with certainty how all this is going to time out exactly, but it's my belief that these are the last days before Christ returns. So let's keep going in verses 2 through 4. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's interesting, John sees a sea of glass, just as he did back in Revelation 4, around the throne of God, but this time, it's mingled with fire. It symbolizes the judgment of God. And he sees something that, honestly, it's, it's a little strange, considering the circumstances. He, he sees people singing. And notice the song they're singing. It's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. I've told you before that throughout Revelation, there's a ton of Exodus imagery. And we see some of that here. This song points us back to the song that Moses and the Israelites sang right after they crossed the Red Sea. You remember the story? They are brought out of Egypt, out of slavery in this miraculous way. The Red Seas parted. They walked through on dry land. And then the seas converge on the Egyptian army. And one of the first things they do in response, they sing. They worship God. And why did the Israelites sing after God drowned all the Egyptians? <laughs> kind of cruel. Why does John see people singing when he's about to bring, God's about to bring his greatest judgment on the earth? It's like a weird time to be singing. <laughs> but these songs are sung. Because these are songs of deliverance. These people understand that God's judgment is not a temper tantrum. It's not a holy hissy fit. No, it's God rescuing his people out of evil. And the people are singing because they understand that they were saved through and out of and from the same judgment they were witnessing. Do you sing for the same reason? Do you understand that you too deserve God's judgment but have been saved out of it in Christ? Do you sing because the, the waters that cover the Egyptians just could have fairly covered you? This is why the song says, he says, Great and amazing are your deeds, just and true are your ways. This song is reminding us before we see God's final act of judgment that God always acts rightly. God is fair and just and good, even in judgment. God does not punish innocent people, but rather he acts in accordance with his perfect holiness. Let's keep going in, in verses 5 through 8. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. 
And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with gold sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So John then sees the seven angels. They're coming out of the sanctuary, which tells us that they're being commissioned by God. They're coming out from his presence, and they're given a bowl full of the wrath of God. And we, we've talked some about the wrath of God in, in previous messages, but I think it's helpful to be reminded because of how foreign this concept has become. You know, there are a lot of Christians and even churches today that really just don't talk about the wrath of God. They have no concept of it. And then there's a lot of believers who just struggle with the idea of a good and loving God having wrath. I remember in high school, in, in English class, we, we studied uh, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You guys remember that? And the way we were taught it, the way it was presented is it was this radical, ridiculous sermon and like how angry and unloving it is. It's like, hey, man, aren't you so glad God's not like that? But what they didn't tell us was the effect that that sermon had on people. That sermon is one of the moments that led to our nation's first great awakening, this huge revival. It said that when Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, he had to stop several times from people crying out in the aisles, wanting to be saved. So this sermon on God's wrath led many to trust in Christ's grace. And this is what we miss when we eliminate wrath. When we soften God's wrath, we soften his grace. You will never fully appreciate being saved until you understand what you've been saved from. We say that again. You will never fully appreciate being saved until you understand what you've been saved from. Uh, Richard Niebuhr, he famously said this. He said, a God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. What he's saying is that when you eliminate wrath from the equation, you eliminate the cross. So yeah, it's uncomfortable, it's painful to imagine, but it's true. And part of our struggle with the wrath of God is that we tend to think of it in human terms. We think of our own anger, but God's anger is different from our sinful anger. Like our wrath is, is more like irritation. <laughs> it's usually self-centered and not justified because someone didn't do what we wanted them to do or we didn't get our way. God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is holy and perfect. It comes from his heart for protecting and purifying his people. And it's important that we balance God's wrath with God's patience. The Bible repeatedly tells us that God is slow to anger and long-suffering and abounding in steadfast love. That means God does not have a short fuse or a quick temper. He's not holding a lightning bolt just waiting for you to cross the line so he can strike you. No, God is always pictured as having this great patience and waiting and waiting and longing for people to turn to him. The Bible also makes clear that eventually God's patience will run out. God will act in justice and he will pour out his wrath on an evil world. 
And that's what we see here with the seven bowls. Notice the smoke that fills the sanctuary. No one can even go in until God is done. It shows us no one can stop him. No one can stay his hand. This is the judgment that God has graciously been holding back and holding back, calling for people to repent before it's too late. And now it's too late. The day of his wrath has come. Let's move on to chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So, so the first bowl is poured out, and everyone who worshiped the beast gets these painful sores. Again, this reminds us of uh, uh, Exodus, right? When, when the plagues were brought on the Egyptian people. Second and third bowls is similar to that, the, the water turning to blood. Remember in Exodus when the Nile River was turned into blood. And, and think about how essential water is now, especially then, how essential it was to human life. So these, these plagues are, are awful. And after the third bowl is poured out, that same angel speaks. And look at what he says in verse 5 through 7. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Man, this third angel, he's not sugarcoating anything. Like He makes two things clear that pack quite a punch. He says, God, you brought these judgments, and they deserve it. Man, it's pretty straightforward. Sometimes people like to envision God's judgment as passive. Like God doesn't really punish, one, punish anyone. He just lets people to choose to live apart from him, and that's their punishment. It's kind of like God just lets us touch the hot eye of the stove so we can be burned and learn our lesson. But that's not what we see here. The angel says, God, you brought these judgments. These bowls come from God himself. When, when God judges the world, he will do so actively. He won't be hiding or shrinking away or trying to get someone else to do it. No, he himself will pour out his judgment on people. And here's why. It says because they deserve it. When God brings down this awful judgment, there won't be anyone who doesn't deserve it. There won't be a single innocent person caught up in this. No one will be treated too unfairly or too harshly. No one will be able to cry out and say, wait, 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 I'm a good person. But do people really deserve this? I mean, all for committing a few sins? Stealing a piece of gum from the store? Are you telling me that's worth an eternity in hell? Does the punishment really fit the crime? Well, the reason we ask those questions is because we have a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of sin. See, sin is not just the things that we do. Sin is who we are. 
Sin is not just an action or a mistake. It's a direction. It's an orientation. It's a heart in complete rebellion and hatred towards God. Our sinful actions, they're just symptoms of the disease that runs through our very souls. It's like going to the doctor for headaches and finding out you have a brain tumor and days to live. That is how serious sin is. It's always much deeper. It's always much more evil than we know. So those who receive God's judgment do so because they deserve it. But it's not just them. It's not just those people out there. It's also you. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that you deserve God's judgment? Do you really believe that you deserve hell? We, we tend to think we're, we're mostly good with just a few blemishes. Well, yeah, I've made a few mistakes along the way, but God knows my heart. He, he knows how hard I try. That's simply not true. And lying about it only makes it worse. It's like putting perfume on a decomposing corpse. We're dead in our sin. We're rotten to the core because of our sin. We, we reek. We stink to the point where even the good things we do have sinful motives. I mean, apart from God's grace, we would do nothing but sin. And I'm saying this so pointedly because we've got to feel this. This can't just be something we know. We will never understand God's judgment until we understand our own sin. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 16. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Fourth and fifth bowls consist of the sun scorching people and then darkness that causes people to gnaw their tongues in anguish. And yet after all this, people refuse to repent. They curse God. Sixth bowl dries up the Euphrates River and these demonic spirits go out to gather the kings of the earth for this great battle and they assemble them at a place that's become very famous in Revelation. It's a place called Armageddon. There was a, a famous movie made with that title, Armageddon. It has Bruce Willis in it. Have you guys seen that? Well, it's got nothing to do with this, okay? It's a pretty good movie. But uh, So, so what, what is Armageddon? I mean, why are people so interested in it? Well, believe it or not, this is the only time in the whole Bible you'll find the word Armageddon. And it's not an event, but rather it's a place. It's going to be the location of the final great battle between Christ and his enemies. And we're going to see a lot more about that. 
But most people believe the word Armageddon refers to a place in the Old Testament called Megiddo. It was a plain about 60 miles north of Jerusalem that became the site of many great battles. It, it became synonymous with this idea of God's people being delivered from their enemies in the battle. So some believe this final battle is going to take place in that exact location. Others say, well, maybe it's not exactly there. Maybe it's figurative. We don't really know. Look, the important thing is that even after experiencing the fullness of God's wrath, people still don't get it. The world still continues to rebel against God to the point where there's this final battle that Scripture's been building to. There's good versus evil, God versus Satan. All of that's going to come to this climactic moment where Jesus will destroy his enemies and he will reign victorious. Let's look at the last part of chapter 16 and verse 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. The seventh bowl is poured out. God says, it is done. Then like the seals and the trumpets, there's this moment of great chaos and creation, except this is even worse. There's lightning, thunder, the greatest earthquake in the history of the world. John again sees the city of Babylon, which we said represents all the worldly powers and systems that oppose God. And it's split in three parts. Symbolizes complete destruction. Islands and mountains are falling away. A hundred pound hailstones fall from the sky. And yet the people continue to curse God. What's so interesting here is the similarities between this final scene and the scene at the cross. Think about it. In both instances, the judgment of God is poured out. On the cross, after experiencing the payment of sin, Jesus cries out with his last words. He says, it is finished. The sky goes dark. There's an earthquake, and the veil in the temple is torn in two. God and man are together again because the wrath of God has been completely satisfied in Jesus Revelation 16, we see this same judgment poured out, except this time, without the cross. God pours out the punishment for sin, and he says, it is done. The sky goes dark, there's an earthquake, but this time, there's no substitute. There's no one to take the place of the people. It's too late for them. And they're separated from God forever. Sometimes as believers, we, we think about the end and this final victory, and, and we think, yeah, get them, God, yeah. Some of that's understandable. We've seen throughout the book of Revelation, God is vindicating his people. He's, he's bringing justice on our behalf. But ultimately, I have mixed feelings here. Like, I want Jesus to come back. I, I want God to make things right again. But, man, these are people. These are real people facing the judgment of God. 
in order to help us really feel this, I want you to think right now about someone you know who's lost. A neighbor, family member, a coworker, a friend. Put them in this chapter. Look with me. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. It's not just people with painful sores. It's someone you know. Look down at verse 8. It's not just people being scorched with fire. It's someone you have a relationship with. What about verse 10? It's not just some people out there gnawing their tongues in misery. It's it's people in Olathe. It's the people that live on our streets and wave as they walk by our house. It's the people we know, we see, we interact with every day. I mean, do, do you feel this? It's, it's, it's almost too, too much to think about. But it's reality. We can't just sweep this under the rug. I and mean, what a disservice I would be doing to ignore this. I know we like happy and funny and uplifting sermons. We want to walk out of church and feel good. But there's nothing good about this. We have to face the truth. And here it is. It's the one and only point we have this morning. And we'll be done. It's this. Without the cross, there is no hope. Without the cross, this is what people will experience. This is what lies in the future for those who don't know Jesus. They will face the judgment of God and they will spend an eternity in hell. These are real people, really burning forever. I mean, there is nothing There is nothing more horrible than that. But here's the good news. I'm so glad we don't have to end there. There is a cross. There is a man, God in human flesh, who died on that cross. There is someone who took our judgment, who took our place on that tree. There is a substitute, a lamb who was sacrificed on our behalf. There is a Savior, one who can save people from all this, and his name is Jesus. There is a cross, and because of that, there is salvation for all who will believe. That means it's not too late. The bowls are not emptied yet. It's not too late. People can still be saved through the cross. No one is too far gone. I don't care who they are, what they've done, how hardened they may be, how far they may have wandered. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the deal, guys. The message won't get there without a messenger. And God's appointed messenger for the message of the cross is you. It's you. That person you you thought of earlier, that lost person who we imagine facing the judgment of God, you are their appointed messenger to get them the message of the cross. God has given you that responsibility to share the gospel with them. He's put you in their life for that purpose because without the cross, there is no hope. So if you've been looking for a sign, this is it. If you've been wondering what your purpose in life is, what your calling is, why God has you where you are, why things haven't turned out the way you wanted, why you live where you do, why you work where you work, why you're in the family you are. If you've been wondering what is the meaning to all this, look, this is it. This is it. You are here 
to tell others about the good news of Jesus. You're here to tell people about the cross. You're here to tell people that there is a way out of judgment and it comes through Jesus. So what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Are we just going to sit here and play church? Are we going to save Olathe from the coming judgment? And I'm, I'm, I'm burdened. Because with every day that passes, we are one day closer to the end. We still have time, but time is running out. We've got to get the gospel to the people. There's no task that's more urgent, no priority more important. There's nothing greater that you or I could put our time and energy into because the end is coming. And it's coming soon. But it may be that the reason you don't feel burdened to share the message of the cross is that you haven't really experienced it for yourself. When you have personally experienced the saving grace of Jesus, you want to share it with others. You want people to know Jesus like you do. So let me ask you, do you know Jesus? Have you ever fully grasped the significance of what Jesus did at the cross for you? And have you made the decision to trust in that yourself? Have you gone public and said, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus and declared that in baptism? This is where it starts. It starts at the cross. Jesus took our place. He took God's judgment so we don't have to trust in that today. It's not about being a good person. It's not about getting your life together. It's not about cleaning up your act. It's about trusting in Jesus. And I would love I would love a chance to talk with you today about what that means. I would love a chance to pray with you so you can give your life to Christ. And then we can take that message of salvation to the world who needs it. So yeah, the, the end is coming. The bowls will be emptied, and yeah, it's going to be awful. But not for those who follow Jesus. We know the cross, and through the cross, we will be saved. What are we going to do about it? Let's pray.